Learning theory explains how students understand, process, integrate, and retain knowledge throughout learning. Prior experience, environmental factors, cognitive ability, and emotions play a large part in a student's worldview or understanding of the world they live in. The worldview influences the way knowledge and skills are acquired, changed, and retained. There are generally three contemporary theories of learning teachers use to guide their teaching practices. Cognitivism, transformative theory, and constructivism. Cognitivism. Cognitivism stems from Gestalt psychology and focuses on the learner and memory. In Gestalt theory, psychologists believe that humans learn by making sense of the relationships between old and new information. The human mind views entities as part of a bigger picture and as components of more complex systems. Cherry, 2019. Cognitive theories of learning focus on the learner instead of the environment and have two underlying assumptions. One, the memory system of the brain is structured and an operational processor of information. Two, prior knowledge plays a key role in learning. Smith, 2018. Because each individual has a unique view of the world, humans create their own learning experiences and uniquely decipher information in ways that may differ from others. Transformative theory. Transformative learning theory explains how people adjust and reinterpret meaning. Taylor, 2008. It is related to the mental process of creating change in a frame of reference. Mizero, 1997. A frame of reference defines the way humans view the world and emotions play a large part in creating that view. Illerus, 2001. Adults typically reject information that conflicts with their views and understanding of the world. Frame of reference is made up of habits of mind and points of view. Habits of mind, such as mindset or persistence, are very difficult to change but possible. However, points of view may change over time as a result of reflection, criticism, or feedback. Mesero, 1997. Transformative learning occurs when a student critically ponders evidence in support of competing understandings and points of view. Mesero, 1997. Constructivism. Constructivism is a concept often mentioned when discussing science classroom learning environments. In fact, much of the current science education research and literature has focused on constructivism. Constructivism is a philosophy about how people learn and specifically addresses how knowledge is acquired and constructed. More specifically, according to the constructivist view, meaningful learning is a cognitive process in which individuals make sense of the world in relation to the knowledge in which they already have constructed. And this sense-making process involves active negotiation and consensus building. Frazier, 1998, page 13. Science educators may agree that constructivism is ideally more desirable over more traditional methods of instruction, such as direct instruction. However, many debate exactly how knowledge is built. The two primary descriptions of constructivism derive from Jean Piaget's 1954 Theory of Cognitive Development and Lev Vatsky's 1978 Social Constructivism. Cognitive constructivism focuses on internal cognitive processes, PJ, 1954, and an individual's attempts to make sense of the world, von Glosserfeld, 1995, whereas social constructivism stresses the significance of society, culture, and language, Lemke, 2001, where knowledge is socially constructed and acquired in specific social and cultural contexts. Despite their differences, both branches of constructivist thought stress the importance of experiential learning and acknowledge that motivation is crucial for the construction of knowledge and the progression of conceptual change. The literature contains many testimonials and experimental research studies that support the idea that meaningful learning is tied to experience. Angelo, Bodner, Bybee, Caprio, Lawson, Leonard, Lord, Lorshan, Tobin, Roth, Seymour. The National Research Council's 1999 report, How People Learn, Bransford, Brown, and Cocking, 2000, 
is also in concert with the constructivist view and suggests inquiry-based learning as a way to have students doing real scientific investigations similar to the way in which practicing scientists define problems, formulate and test hypotheses, and draw conclusions. Inquiry-based learning has many non-science classroom applications as well. Currently, there are many models of constructivist learning. Examples would be Glasson and Lilac, Hewson and Tabernick, Nussbaum and Novick. However, David Palmer, 2005, examined the extent to which motivational strategies have been considered in the design of existing constructivist-informed teaching models and found that existing models were inadequate in explicitly integrating motivation. Palmer also found that some models, in fact, conflict with the currently accepted views of motivation. Thus, new models integrating motivation and constructivism are needed. In a 2012 article by BGSU faculty Parton and Haney, such a model is proposed and they discuss implications for further research in this particular area. Guest Introduction Today's guest is a professor in the School of Teaching and Learning at Bowling Green State University. He teaches science methods for the inclusive early childhood classroom, advanced methods in elementary school science, advanced pedagogy and best practices, qualitative approaches to classroom inquiry, as well as issues and trends in curriculum and instruction. His research focuses on play in human and non-human primates lesson study with pre-service and in-service teachers, and the acquisition of pedagogical content knowledge. He's a good friend and colleague. Please welcome Dr. Rick Warch. Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Professor, where you will find interviews of college faculty, staff, administrators, students, and alumni every week. Topics cover all aspects of formal and informal learning in higher education. The goal of this podcast is to help faculty understand the best ways to teach and for students to understand the best ways to learn. Your host is a teaching professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University. He's been faculty and the director of the BGSU Marine Lab since 1999. Now on to the show with your host, Dr. Matthew L. Parton. So, Rick Warch, yes. welcome to my office. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming here at the end of our exam week. And <laughs> yep. Yeah, so you're getting all your exams finished. You said you got, finally got all your grading done. Got finished this morning. Yeah, nice. now I can celebrate. Yeah, that's what Tammy next door here, she said she just got everything done and she's really, it's the first time ever. Usually it's like, uh, you know... Close to the deadline. Yeah, the grades are yeah. Due. I'm usually putting them in about four o'clock when they're due at five o'clock. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've uh, uh, only I've only missed the deadline once, and it was because we were on a field trip in uh, Mississippi at the Gulf Coast Research Lab, uh-huh. and I forgot about the time difference. Oh, there yeah, different time Central zone. Time. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, you know, we can do our activities and come back, and I can just hit the submit button and. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was a mess. Anyways, so I want to hear about your educational background. All right. Well, I earned a bachelor's degree in biology uh, at Indiana University and uh, didn't really know what to do with, with that degree. So I sort of bumped around a little bit doing various things. But um, then I went back to get my certification to be a teacher. So I was a middle school and high school teacher. And while I was working on that, I uh, got a, deg- a master's degree, an MAT, in, in general science. And um, about f- four years later, I decided to start a PhD program in science education. And while I was doing that, I discovered that I needed to have 36 more hours of graduate level science. I was a little worried about that. <laughs> So I did some exploring and decided to go into anthropology. Okay. So I have a PhD in science education and biological anthropology with a specialization in primatology. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you have been at BGSU for... 13 years. 13 years. Wow. Seems like just yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Feels <laughs> like it's 13 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you've been here... In the School of Teaching and Learning. Yep. And you teach uh, methods courses? I teach science methods courses. That's generally what I teach in the undergraduate level. And then I teach 
advanced pedagogy classes and uh, current trends and issues and qualitative research in the graduate program. Okay. So they're keeping you busy over there, it sounds like. And what I want to know is a little bit about your teaching philosophy. I mean, so you're one of those people that uh, has done a whole lot of learning and you teach teachers how to teach. That's right. So I, I guess I wanted to hear about your teaching philosophy. Okay. I'm not sure if I have a complicated philosophy. Basically, my philosophy is let the students do it before you talk about it. If you can get that done, you've probably accomplished most of what you need to do as a teacher. They really need to have firsthand experience about the concepts you're trying to explain to them in order to actually have some hooks in their brain in order to attach the material you're trying to tell them. So that's why I always say do it before you talk about it. And that fits into constructivist learning theory very well. Um, Constructivist learning theory is, it's been around for a while, but it's derived on um, some theories uh, from Vygotsky in the the 1930s and from Piaget in the 60s and 70s. But it's basically the idea that everyone learns something different than everyone else. So somebody is listening to this broadcast right now, and they're hearing and perhaps interpreting certain things that I'm saying. And another person listening to this broadcast or hearing and making a different interpretation of what I'm saying. So nobody is experiencing the same thing at the same time. And that's an important concept for teachers to really get a hold of. It's really um, important for teachers to keep in mind that just because I say something doesn't mean the teachers heard it and interpreted it the way I said it. Right. So, uh, you know, lecture format can, can be very useful. There are good reasons for using lecture formats, but the teacher needs to keep in mind, again, that just because I'm reading off a script doesn't mean the, te- the students are interpreting the same thing that the teacher is. So we have to be very vigilant about making sure we know where students are, how they're interpreting those concepts that we're trying to pass along, and then making sure that we adjust, adjust ourselves in order to uh, meet the needs of each student. Okay, so so assessing that prior knowledge is really important in constructivism. So give me an example of how you would use constructivism in one of your classes. Okay. Well, we always, like I said, start out by doing something. So an example might be to have students um, basically just, I use the word play, but it's explore is what is our official word in science education. So explore a concept, and that concept could be, for example, electricity. Okay, I'm in early childhood education primarily. So one of the things we uh, want students to be able to do is understand how an electric circuit actually works. And we don't really think about that much in our everyday lives. You flip on a switch, light comes on, you flip it off, (laughs) light goes off. It's pretty simple. But it's uh, understanding exactly how a circuit works requires some experience with a circuit. And so we give students a very simple circuit, at least materials in which to build a very simple circuit. All we have to do is give them one wire without any insulation, one little flashlight bulb, and a D-cell battery, and give them the problem of make the light bulb light. Then it's up to them. They have to play with those three materials. They're using what they currently believe might make the light bulb light, and perhaps learning that what they thought might make the light bulb light doesn't work. So identifying those misconceptions. And, and, they're, and they're actually self-identifying. The, the instructor is, is watching and, and taking mental notes of what's going on. But it's really cool that the students are actually identifying their own misconceptions. And from those misconceptions, adapting how they're interacting with the materials until they get the light bulb to actually light. That is really powerful learning. So after we do that, we want to talk about it because there actually isn't one way to make that light bulb light. There are several ways you can make that light bulb light with just the wire, the bulb, and the battery. And so what we do is have students come up and make pictures of how they made the light bulb light. What did it look like? What did the wire look like in relation to the battery and the bulb? 
and we'll find that probably maybe four different pictures might show up on that board. So the interesting thing is, wow, everybody got the light bulb to light, but they don't look the same. So what must be really important about an electric circuit? What are the key features that we see here in all four drawings that represent what must be true about an electric circuit? And so I just try to elicit those things from the students. I'm not telling them what they are. They're telling me what they are because they can see the evidence just as well as I can. That is what I consider very good constructivist learning. They are building their own concepts. I'm helping them build those concepts after we've had a chance to play with the materials. And I help them attach terminology to those materials. So, you know, what is it about um, the, the parts of a light bulb? Sometimes it's, a, it's, you don't really need to know the parts of a light bulb, but if you want to talk about something that's happening inside the light bulb, it's kind of nice to know that there's a filament. Right. Yeah. So, so that's where the electricity is going through. So, you know, you introduce some few terms, but not too many. But the whole idea is to get what the students' own experiences have just been and shape them into what would be considered correct scientific thinking. That's uh, super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And what about 5E? So do you ever use 5, uh, 5E? Yeah, I use the 5E. Most of the time I use the 5E. Okay. So could, could you explain that? Sure. So with the 5E learning cycle, it was uh, developed by a uh, biological curriculum science study. And uh, the basic idea behind the um, 5E learning cycle is you start out by grabbing the student's attention. And that is called the engage phase. And with the engage phase, you want it to be something that is um, a little bit mentally disturbing in a way, <laughs> right? So you see something that happens and you go, wow, why did that happen? I have no idea why that just did that. And that gets the student motivated to want to find out why that happened. So uh, one example I might use going back to the electrical circuit is I make a light bulb light with two pots of dirt. So I make a battery out of the two pots of dirt and then make the light bulb light. And they can't understand why the pot, a pot of dirt would make a light bulb light. Right, right? right. That shouldn't happen. So that's how we get into the idea of what a circuit is and what the battery is. And then we can relate it back eventually to making that light bulb light with some dirt. Um, but because they're motivated now to find out why that light bulb lit up with some dirt... They're ready to do that engage or that explore phase that I had just mentioned, where I give them the light bulb, the battery, and the wire. So that's the engage. The engage phase is uh, really student driven. It could be, it doesn't always have to be that the teacher has to give a challenge like I did, like make the light bulb light. It could just be find out what you can find out. But um, it just depends on where students are and what your purpose is for your lesson at that particular time. So that's the explore phase. And then we moved into the explain phase when I was asking students to put the drawings that they made on the board so that we could talk about them and try to come up with what are the essential features of an electric circuit. Maybe introduce a few vocabulary terms at that time. So that's the explanation phase, really trying to make sense of the students' experiences. It's a really important phase because um, if students don't think carefully, often should say, don't think carefully about what they actually learned in the explore, the teacher has to make that apparent sometimes. So this might include some direct instruction. Might include some direct instruction. So um, one of the things I actually have students do during that phase is um, a, st a student might not have made the light bulb light in that particular drawing the way, it, the way it looks. And so I said, okay, I want you to make that, make your wire and light bulb and battery match what's on that drawing and see if you can make the light bulb light. So, oh, yep, it does work. Okay. Um, we can also, you know, sometimes show a short video. We can have uh, simulations. A lot of different things. The tr kind of traditional teaching right. falls in readings that. and readings, even a short lecture. 
Yeah. So almost anything we think of as sort of traditional kinds of teaching and instruction would fit into that particular uh, phase. Now, we, if, with a 5E model, typically what you do then is you move into what's called the elaboration phase. And the elaboration phase is an, another hands-on activity that has students try to apply both what they learned in the explore phase and what they thought about and learned in the explain phase to apply that knowledge to a new situation. So an example might be with the batteries and bulbs again, is have them try to figure out what kind of materials would complete a circuit. So you, you, they already know how to make the circuit. What could we put in, in the middle of that circuit that would either allow the circuit to continue, to actually you know, be a, a, a circuit, or what would we put in there that might actually break the circuit? So you different kinds of materials. And so they can play around with those, and then they can figure out from their data what materials are insulators and what materials conduct electricity. So it's a new application, but it's still on the same idea. And um, the reason that's uh, a useful idea is because we've talked about that to a certain degree in the explain phase because we had to figure out why, if we put the wire on some location of the bulb, it didn't work. And why if we put it in another location, it did. So there's this idea of insulation and conducting. So we're kind of going back to those ideas, but in a, in a different, slightly different way. Now, another thing that we like to do here at BGSU is we have uh, another phase we've put into the... The 6E. The 6E, yeah. So yeah, you can't have too many E's. <laughs> so in between the explain and, and the elaboration, we have what's called... Um, <laughs> yeah, what is that called? <laughs> Call it Emilio for Emilio yeah, Duran. Yeah. Uh, let me think about that. I can't remember it. Um, so didn't, didn't uh, Emilio kind of come up? Yeah, with so Emilio Duran and, and some other folks here at BGSU. Um, I know that uh, Jody Haney was part of that. Lena was part of that. So they came up with this. But the, the basic idea is to have students express what it is they've learned. And that's the E, is the express. Okay. So the express phase is sort of a break in the instruction. So after I've um, given them a hands-on activity, we've talked about that, we've debriefed about it, I want to see who's with me, who's ready to move on to that elaboration phase, and who might need a little more remediation. Okay. okay. And also, some people just have it cold right now. They don't need anything else. They really understand what a circuit is and what the idea of insulators and conductors are. I don't need to give them another activity like that. So this is how you you do a different different a differentiation 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 yeah. among students who have varying levels of skill. Exactly. I got it. Yeah. So this is a great way to differentiate. So we uh, insert a particular assessment in here, and it's not considered an assessment for a grade. It's just an assessment for the teacher to find out what each student knows, and once you know what each student knows, then you can put them in the correct level of elaboration in the next phase. So I usually do the, the uh, express phase at the, what I consider the end of a lesson, so that I'm going to stop my lesson after I do this, so that I have the night and maybe the next morning to go over what the student's results were and place them in the proper tier. I've already decided what the tiers are. I kind of have a pretty good idea from the time I've spent teaching that I know pretty much what students don't get and what they do get. Right. And so I, I have those tiers already planned out. So all I have to do is take the time to look at the data and then put them in the tiers the next day. So that's really the, the 5E and so now the, the 6C model all in one little package. And it's uh, very powerful. There's a lot of data that shows that the 5E learning cycle is a very effective yeah. tool. Right. So we have... Uh, what's the first one? Engagement, Engage, and then explore, explore explain, and then explain, elaborate, yep. and then the... It, we have the express in between. The express. Expl the express is in between the explain and the elaborate. Okay. And so after the elaborate, you've basically finished a cycle. You're back ready to start a new cycle with the next engage. Or the... Uh, uh, and then when do we do our... Is it examined? Well, it depends on, on 
you know, what your philosophy is on that particular issue, um, you certainly want to have some kind of an assessment. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, the activity that you're having students do in the elaboration can serve as that assessment. Oh, okay. I see. So you don't have to give a separate quiz. You don't have to give a separate test. Um, Their work on that particular part of the activity will tell you, okay, they... The, pe- the people I thought who needed remediation were remediated and they actually got the objectives I set out for them. Right. The students who really didn't need a, really a medi- remediation, but just needed a little bit more time with the concept to really make it solid. I want to make sure that they're there. They got the concepts and the learning objectives uh, that I met. And then the ones who I've determined in that express phase had already met the objectives, the ones that were challenged I don't really have to do, you know, much of an assessment on that. Everything that they do is more than what I'm required to do in terms of meeting the state standards and my learning objectives. So everything they've done is beyond that. So they've met a challenge. Um, they've demonstrated their uh, performance on the objectives. So it's really kind of nice because oftentimes um, I wouldn't call the, this activity something that you do for gifted students. It's just that oftentimes students get bored. Mm-hmm. And so when you have boredom, then you have to worry about a lot of the other issues in a classroom, which comes along with classroom management, discipline, and that sort of thing. But if everybody's engaged, if you got them at the right cognitive level in that elaboration phase, or everybody's engaged at the appropriate level, everything goes pretty smoothly. Right. So uh, I guess, could you talk a little bit about the zone of proximal development? Sure. Yeah, so Lev Vygotsky came up with the zone of proximal development. And the basic idea with that is um, a learner on his or her own would uh, be able to learn a certain amount of information, okay? And that could be by reading a book. It could be by um, doing an activity. But the zone of proximal development is saying, what could a student do if I gave them the right support? And that right support might be another student to work with them so they can talk about what they're learning. And Bogotsky was big on social constructivism. That was really his, his area. So this idea of social constructivism would be um, that almost all learning is social in some way. Even a book is social. You read a book, mm-hmm. you're reading what the author is trying to convey but the reader is interpreting that in a different way. So now we're going back to constructivism. So just because it's on a piece of paper doesn't mean people are going to interpret it the same way. So even that is social learning. The idea of the zone of proximal development is I can move them from where they could be if I just gave them a book, just gave them um, an activity, to where they could be if I allowed them to have the right support. And that right support might be might be the teacher. The teacher might just sit there and work with the student and make it happen. Usually, it's because we use um, group learning, cooperative learning, or collaborative learning. And so that group, small group of students work together. And by working together, everybody is thinking about the concept in a little bit deeper way because sometimes you're challenged. When you have an idea, well, somebody might have a different idea. And so now you're challenged to think about your own belief. And that is a very powerful tool that can help you move along in terms of your cognitive development. So, so the group will progress to a certain stage and then they scaffold to the next level? Yeah, so, yeah, so each time you provide a new set of scaffold. So, um, and it really, again, depends on each student. So I had that one idea of using group learning as a, a form of scaffolding, okay? However... Not everybody might respond in the same way with that scaffold I put in place. Some students are going to do very well with that support I put in place. Others I will find may not have succeeded to the point that I wanted. So I need a different scaffold for them to get them up to where I want them to be. And that goes back to that elaboration phase. Is When I talk about the different activities that students do, it's because I want to put the right supports in to get them in their proper zone of proximal development so I can move them to where they're supposed to be. It's, it, it, teaching isn't really that simple. Um, right. I think people 
you think of it that it's a really simple activity. Anybody could be a teacher, but if you want to be a good teacher, you have to think a lot and you right. have to assess what the students are doing, why they're doing what they're doing, and how can I get them on the right path to be thinking correctly if they're not thinking correctly now. And identifying that that proper zone of proximal development. If it's if you're aiming too low, they get bored. Yep. You aim too high, they get frustrated right. and quit. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a tricky task. And so assessment becomes a really important part of that. You know, not not so much uh, graded assessments, but just that you're assessing where each student is all the time. Informally, it doesn't have to be any fancy way, but just making sure that you're asking questions or having kids do things or you're making the observations you need to make so you can get a good sense of what students are thinking about the concepts you're trying to get them to learn. Right. So the, the, that formative assessment where you're at the low stakes, just to, yep. so you can get a sense of where everybody's at. Sometimes you can just kind of, you know, I'm lecturing in front of 200 students and I can just see if their eyes are closed. <laughs> That's <over>. right. <laughs> yeah. And it works well with a large group like that. It's, yeah. it's pretty nice to see that. It works uh, even better with smaller groups, of course. Yes. But it's the kind of tool, assessment tool you can use with any size group that you are working with. So it's a very powerful uh, type of assessment. I, I think everybody should be using some, using formative assessments most of the time and using formal graded assessments as little as possible. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, the summative assessments, the big right. exams and yep. Yeah. I just moved over to, so I used top hat a few years uh-huh. back and you know what that is, is yep. the clicker system yep. and put the questions up and have students discuss. And so I'm excited. I, I, I tried it about five years ago and um, I didn't, I didn't like passing the cost onto the students because right. they had, it was, it's like 20, I think they had to pay $15 or $20 right. to, to get the clickers to yeah. use it. And so I tried some free alternatives, but now I'm back to, uh, I think I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going all my classes. I'm using top. Hat. I don't know if you've ever tried that or not, or I've not, one of the I've, similar. Yeah. I've, I've not tried top app, but I've used some clicker systems before. Um, there are, there are some systems out there where the teacher pays the, the fee yeah, and students don't have to use a clicker. They can use their smartphone or tablet or even a laptop computer to respond to the, the, the answers. It works pretty well. Um, it uh, challenges bandwidth sometimes. If you have yeah. a large <laughs> class, it's very difficult. Sometimes you get everybody to have a chance to respond because you get blocked out. Right. Or you get booted out if somebody else gets on. So there are some limitations of that particular technology. But in a in a class of, of thirty students, that those technologies work pretty well. All right. So your various research focus. Uh I I know one of them is play behavior sure. of both human and non human primates. Yep. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um it's been a while since I've um, been to Africa, but I uh, did my started out doing my research on play in monkeys. So I lived uh, two years in Uganda and studied play in five different species of monkeys there. And the basic idea behind this was I was looking at the social uh, cultural aspects of each type of monkey. So how they uh, organize themselves in social groups, how they might travel at adulthood. So some groups, the males will travel at adulthood. Sometimes it's the females that travel at adulthood. So those kinds of things can make a difference in terms of the potential bonds that someone might make with uh, another individual. So if you know that you're going to leave a group, or it's not so much being a conscious decision, but if females leave a group, maybe female bonds aren't that important because they're going to be broken because they will be in another group when they're adults. So maybe females playing with other females isn't really all that important if you're in a group where females leave. Same with adult males. If adult males are living in a group where the adult males leave, maybe it isn't all that important for adult males to play with each other and form those bonds because those bonds are going to break. So that's some of the ways people look at why animals play in the wild. For me, I primarily focused on diet. And what I found is that well, let me go back to, this is what I thought was going to happen. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, fruit-eating monkeys have a pretty high-quality diet. You know, fruit is good for you. 
They typically supplement that with um, insects. Insects are really good for you. They have lots of fat and protein. So it's a pretty healthy diet that they have. Whereas a leaf eater, uh, you know, you, you don't get a lot out of a leaf. You have to be pretty well adapted to use the leaves. And, and colobus monkeys are. They have chambered stomachs like cows. So they are able to take a lot of nutrition out of the food they eat. But my expectation was that they probably wouldn't be as energetic because leaves are also full of um, toxins that, to protect themselves. So just like a, a green fruit doesn't taste good, well, leaves don't taste all that good either. So my assumption was going into this that the fruit eaters would play a lot and the leaf eaters wouldn't play very much at all. But it was just the opposite. <laughs> just the opposite. So yeah, the, uh, the leaf eaters, the way it turns out is that basically you can cram a lot of monkeys in one tree and eat leaves. So the, the group could stay in a, in a tree, a single tree, the adults would be eating. And while the adults are feeding, the youngsters have nothing left to do but play. And they're all right next to each other. So they just play and play and play. So I, I just found out, you know, the colobus monkeys played about 30 to 36% of the time which is a pretty, pretty good amount. What I found with the fruit eaters was that their diet forces them to be spread out more. There's not a lot of fruit in a single tree, at least ripe fruit. So you um, spread out your group a little bit. Now, sometimes you can get to a fig tree and have a nice big, that's a big tree. So you can have all your, all your monkeys in, in that same tree. And when I do see play, it's when they're in a big tree and all the group, all the whole group is in that same tree. So they're sitting there eating, their adults are grooming, the kids have time to play, and they're in close proximity so they can play. But you have to travel a lot to go to fruit trees. There's, they're, not, right. they're not widely distributed, so they're kind of clumped. And so while the uh, monkeys were traveling from one group or one tree to the next tree to grab fruit, uh, the infants had to be clinging to their mom. So there's no opportunity to play. And uh, while they're traveling, they're also looking for insects along the way. And if you're looking for insects, you got to be a little bit stealthy. You know, you don't want to have a big mob of monkeys going through them and scare all the insects away. So they tend to be pretty spread out. So in the fruit-eating monkeys that are supplementing their diet with insects, they just don't have very many opportunities to play. When there is an opportunity, they do play. It seems to be limited to about 5% of the time compared with about 35% of the time for the colobus monkey. So there's really a huge difference. So diet is, is really important. And I, I look at what I found with that and try to apply that to humans. And it's not so much that, that diet is important, but it's how we occupy our time that is important for play. So if we just kind of think about what the, what the colobus monkeys were doing, they basically had a lot of time to socialize, kind of low-key. You know, everybody's just there sort of chilling out, eating and grooming and playing. It's a pretty low-key kind of atmosphere, and there's a lot of play going on. That's the way humans need to start living. We don't live that way very well. You know, we're always active. We overprogram kids' lives. Right, especially here in the United States. Yeah. So we so we really have programmed out the opportunity to play in the way kids really need to play. They still can play, but we don't give them um, the opportunity to really play that's in a powerful type of play. So, so, so just lots of downtime where they're just sitting around and then said, and then they just start making up games because yeah. they've got nothing else to do and there's a bunch of kids around. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, making, um, having kids be in, in minor league baseball or, you know, major league baseball for the, you know, the local community, that, that's a great experience, but it isn't play. Right. Right. Because they're told what to do each time, right? You got to stand in a certain part. You got to go up to the plate and bat at a certain time. You're expected to catch the ball. I mean, it, there are a right. lot of expectations. Free play is not like that. Free play is you make it up. And, and it's, again, a social construction. If you have multiple people there, they are deciding what that play is going to look like. So it's very fluid. You have to cooperate. You have to know how to accept no with somebody. The other people in the group don't want to do what you're doing. So it's, it's extremely powerful, but there's a lot of good skills for kids. And I think we're just programming that 
out of their lives right now. So a baseball game could be free play if it's just a bunch of kids like, sure. hey, let's go play some baseball. And, and, and that's what I did as a kid. I, mean, I played the major league, minor league baseball games too. Yeah. But we, would have, we had a vacant lot in the area and we would just go out there and play. And it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had to kind of make up the rules as we go because, you know, the, in a lot, you, it's not like a baseball diamond. So you got to decide what's out of bounds, what's in bounds, and where's the, where are the bases going to be? So there, there's a lot of negotiation that goes on, and that that is play. Yeah, and you know what? So I've played a lot of volleyball, so a lot of competitive volleyball, and um, and even like two on two sand volleyball <clears throat> would play in tournaments and mm-hmm. in uh, indoors would you know played real tournaments against real teams. But the most fun by far playing volleyball is just unorganized, just a bunch of people we play a bunch of games until the sun goes down yeah. and and we I don't even remember who won what or how many games we even played yeah. or if I won any of them it didn't matter. It, yes, that's, right. that's right. Winning doesn't matter. It's the experience of playing. That's what matters. That's why play is so powerful. Um so I'm also using uh what I've learned from from monkeys to do some research with children and uh, primarily my research is in nature play. So we try to create uh, either a built environment that is sort of a natural setting. So an example of that would be a Toledo Zoo in the nature's neighborhood. Right. And you, so you helped create or helped, they consulted you with the design on nature's neighborhood. That's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm proud of nature's neighborhood. It didn't yeah. turn out, you know, one thing I found out is when money comes into play, well, the ideas you have start to get winnowed down and so it didn't look exactly like i thought it was going to because the money but it's still pretty cool well it's it's uh fantastic if 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 anybody listening to this has not been to the toledo zoo uh go check that out my kids that's the first you know i'm always like hey let's go look at the aquarium (laughs) and let's go look at the chimpanzees and apes and they're like uh when do we get to go to the play area right right and that's the way my daughter was too (laughs) So yeah, she, well, in fact, because I like monkeys, she never wanted to go to the monkeys with me. <laughs> of yeah. course. Yeah, so it's just her yeah. way of thumbing her nose at me. But she really liked nature's neighborhood. Um, but we also do things in, uh, say, the metro parks in Toledo, Lucas County. So we set up play events in a metro park, and all we do is basically throw a bunch of natural materials out there and let kids do with it what they want to do. We also put some man-made materials in there as well. So we have shovels and buckets and nets and things like that. But we have no agenda. It's do with it what you want. And sometimes it, it's really pretty amazing. So I remember one time we were in uh, Swan Creek. It was in March, I think. It was chilly. And the water was pretty high because we had, had some melt-off. The, uh, the kids started out playing on the edge of the, the river and, you know, we had buckets and things like that there and they wound up just in the water. They were, they were, it was cold and they were in the water having a great time. You know, some of them were trying to walk on logs that, you know, trees that had fallen over. And so they were kind of walking on these logs that were uh, going over the water and they'd slip off and fall in the water and have a great old time. It's funny to watch parents because they're, they don't, you know, if you're not, uh, a permissive parent, you have a hard time with letting your kids do things like that because you don't right, want them to get right, muddy. Right, you don't want right. them to get wet. It's too cold. But what we found is that parents who kept doing these play events over and over again with this became permissive and let their kids play the way kids should play. And that's a great thing. Kids, the kids had a good time, but what we really did was educate the parents. And again, it's, it's you know, parents, the adults are the ones who run the world. So we've got to change the way we're looking at the world so the kids have those opportunities to play the way they're supposed to. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess play behavior, I was going to ask you something else and I don't remember what it was. Hmm. Well, um, I mean, I do a little bit with science education as well. So some of the, some of the research I do in science education has to do with uh, primarily attitudes about science. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm for me, as a teacher, I know that there are standards and there are objectives that, that relate to content that I'm supposed to have my students meet. But for me, the most important thing is I want them to like science. Right. I want them to understand how it works and enjoy it. I don't really want to test them on whether or not they know 
um, what the definition of an igneous rock is. Right. Okay. But I do want them to know how to find out if something is an igneous rock. Yeah. So we, we try to, to, to look at science in terms of being an engaging sort of activity. So a lot of the research I do in science education looks, looks at how students feel about the activities that they're doing and um, how much they're learning about how science works or the nature of science. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that I always, I've always been big on because I, I want my students, especially in my, my uh, large lecture hall, you know, 200 students yeah. in my marine biology classes. These are non-majors that, you know, they're majoring in anything but science. Right. And I know that I cannot teach them everything there is to know about marine biology or science because they only probably take two science classes yeah. while they're here. In one semester, right? 16, 15, 16 weeks, I can't teach them everything they nope. need to know. So one of the things that I, that I want for them to come out of the class as lifelong learners. Right. So I've given them enough that they know where to look and, how, and, and, and are excited about it and want to actually right. go look and, and find resources that teaches them about science. They want to watch the Discovery Channel. They want to, gr when they grow up, they want to talk to their kids about science and they want to take them to the zoo and, yep. and, and instill those values in their kids and pass it on. So that's, that's one of the things that I've always been really big on is, is just uh, trying to figure out what's it going to take to make my students a lifelong learner. Right. And that's something that I, I, I consider a lot is intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations mm -hmm. and, and uh, different types of extrinsic motivation that tends to undermine the intrinsic Correct. motivation. Maybe yeah. you can save that discussion for another. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's a little different on the amount of each that kind of motivates them, but I'm all for intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you can get people wanting to do what they um, should be doing, which is being knowledgeable, being a good citizen, you know, all the kind of things right. that we think people should do as an adult, well, the only way they're going to do it is if they actually want to do it. Right. And right. So we don't want to pound the interest out of them. We want to instill that interest so that they keep wanting to find out more. So to me, that's the really important part about education. Oh, so I remember what I was going to ask you. Why in the world? All right. So constructivism is so central to science education and everybody in the school of, I, I, I'm going to say this, I'm fairly confident that everybody in the School of Teaching and Learning has heard of constructivism. Oh, yeah. We all use it. But I would be very surprised if 10% of the faculty outside of yeah. School of Teaching and Learning have, have even heard of constructivism. Why, why is that? Well, a lot of it is because we don't really prepare college instructors to be college instructors. We prepare them to know their content area. We prepare them to know how to do lab procedures, how to think within their discipline, how to um, manipulate um, concepts so that they can make an argument. We teach them how to do those things very well, but we don't really teach them how to be teachers. And people rely on what they know which is, well, and I was in college, everything was a lecture. So that's the way you teach in college, you teach as a lecture. And so it's a self-fulfilling cycle of what I would call, I'm not, I don't want to call it ineffective instruction, but perhaps not the full potential right. of what instruction could be. And I know that K through 12, they've really, you know, the pendulum swung way over towards the more active learning and in college you know, higher ed starting to swing that way as well. I know that that's a big, uh, we talk about it a lot in our department and um, the university, the college is starting to talk a lot about these types of, uh, you know, active learning experiences. Right. And I, I've heard that the new provost is also talking about those good. kinds of things. That's very good. I'm glad. I think the new provost has got some good ideas and I hope he can push that one through. Yeah. Well, he's a scientist. Yeah. So. Yeah. Physicist, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that that's great. It's good for us because yes. it's nice to have an advocate, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I uh I, I don't really know, you know, how we go about preparing professors or, or college instructors to be 
good teachers. I know that's a, it's a, it's a tight frame. I mean, you know, you've all got your, your agendas to follow. If you're a, a mentor of someone who's a doctoral student, you have a, you know, you have this agenda of what you expect them to get out of it. But I do think that um, we need to carve some time into not just letting PhD or master's students teach a class, but teach them how to teach the class effectively and not mimic what I do if I'm a lecturer. Right. That's just right. one way of instruction, but there are lots of different ways. And we need to open up their eyes to those different ways that can be very effective for some students. So what is your advice for any students who happen to be, if any students happen to listen <laughs> to any of my uh, uh, interviews here? Sure. Uh, wh- what do you think they should be doing? Well, they should really be trying to understand why things work. Now, I know that test-wise, they, need, they might just need to perform in certain ways of just regurgitating information. But I really want them to start thinking about why is that the answer? How does that answer make sense? Or why does that answer make sense? If it doesn't make sense to me, why doesn't it make sense to me? Start asking some really important questions and not just, if I do this, this should be the answer. Right. And I think if we can get people to start questioning why we do things the way we do, whether it's why we lecture or, or why we add two numbers together and it comes out to be that. Why, why is that? You know, there, there's actually some important information to think about with that. It, it, if you just accept it, you're never really going to understand mathematical thinking. And same holds true with science. If you just try to memorize an answer, you're not really understanding how science works. You need to really ask the questions. How does science work? It could be true of any discipline that you're interested in or any class you're taking. How does it work? Why are they making those kinds of um, conclusions or inferences? Um, You know, I think philosophy for me is pretty esoteric, right? I have a hard time kind of putting myself in some of the philosophical arguments that, that I hear. But I wish I had an opportunity to have learned how to do that. Because I think that's a really great mental exercise. And um, all of us in some way are, are shortchanged by either not being challenged to do that by instructors or not taking the initiative themselves to ask those kinds of questions that are really important. Why? Okay. Rick, thank you so much for coming out here and talking with me today. Yep. You're welcome. And, and it, those of you who may recognize the voice of um, the introduction in the outro for this podcast is uh, Dr. Rick Warsh. Yep. I had a good cup of coffee before that. (laughs) Hey, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Teaching and Learning Professor with Dr. Matthew L. Parton. If you like our show and want to know more, check out his webpage at blogs.bgsu.edu slash teaching and learning professor. And please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you retrieve your podcasts.